thank you to all that participate in the music today. Well, it's good to see the congregation from this perspective again. Praise the Lord for the opportunity to be able to share his word together. And I trust on this Memorial Day, as we think about some truths from the scripture, that encourage us in the mission we have tomorrow to reach out to our community. Little we know, really, how deeply God loves people. He, in fact, created us in a special way to be his companions for all eternity. And some of these truths that I'm going to talk about we know, but sometimes we don't comprehend them in the fullness of their truth such that they touch our souls and our hearts and our very constitution that we might reach out and serve God more faithfully. The Bible provides a record of God's love and the amazing account of the extent to which he was willing to go to have an eternal relationship, to have eternal fellowship with the people he created and loved so dearly. The eternal past, the eternal past. You know, God is eternal. That means he always has been and he always will be. He is eternal. Uh, it's somewhat easy for us to think of God being eternal in terms of the future. We're here and alive, we think in the future, and especially as we think of it biblically, we know that death is coming, but with death will come life with Christ, and then eventually the resurrection and our life with Christ for all eternity. So we have somewhat of a concept of the future, but when we look to the past and try to comprehend what it means for there to have been an eternity in the past, we kind of get stuck on that one. As I begin to think about that, I get back to 1948 and I get stuck there first. That was the year I was born. It's hard for me to imagine a lot of things that happened before I was born, just a few years before that was World War II. Well, then I could go back even farther if I visualize it. Maybe to 1905, that was the year my father was born. And then I can think of my history in school, and then I can think of the scriptures that go all the way back to Adam. But to think that God existed before creation. Before creation. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2 put it this way. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Amazing. An amazing thought. God has always existed, even when nothing else existed. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. Habakkuk was praising the Lord. And it's almost, as you read his words, it's almost as though uh, he put it in the form of a question because even though he believed it, he couldn't fully comprehend it. He said it like this, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? Art thou not from everlasting? And in other words, I can understand God comprehending that and being able to say that to me, but actually I have to ask him because I just can't quite get around that concept. A popular term today is the term our world view. You've certainly all heard that. About midway through my life, that became a popular phrase. 
And your worldview has a big impact on who you are, what you do, and how you look at things. A tremendous impact. And our worldview as Christians ought to be of an eternal God who always has been and always will be. In fact, God is above any concept of time. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, Moses appeared at the burning bush and God was speaking to him. And uh, he said, well, who shall I tell them sent me? And God's answer were these famous words, which, formed, which ended up being his name, Yahweh. I am that I am. And he said, thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. I am is who God said he was. He is above time. Some people have pictured it as a parade. Time is a parade going by God who looks down and he sees the beginning at the same time he sees the end. They're all one time as far as he's concerned. <sighs> Think about that very long and see smoke coming out of the top of my head. Well, what was it like? What do we know about eternity past before the creation of the world? What was it like? What was it like for God to live in that time in which there was nothing? A time in which there was nothing. What must it have been like for God to be alone throughout all eternity past? Well, the scriptures give us at least three glimpses. Three glimpses framed by God's attributes that describe what it was like. And I would like to look at those three glimpses and God's attributes a little bit this morning as we go through this. You know, many times in Scripture, as we study the Scriptures and seek to set down doctrinal truth, we run across little phrases which really aren't even necessarily the main idea of a sentence, but they're little phrases in a sentence that give us clues about things that we have no way of knowing otherwise. For those of you who are believers here today, the Bible is... is is like an unveiling of a tremendous number of things that we cannot see. A tremendous number of things that we could not know except they were revealed in this book. Can you imagine what it must be like for the world who don't read this book or believe this book? What must they think about where they came from? Who God is if there is a God? What's going on in the world today and why? What's going to happen in the next... 10 years, centuries. Well, we may not be able to predict in the next 10 years, but we know where we're headed, don't we? And we know because of this book. And this book tells us something about what it was like for God who existed in eternity past. And uh, John chapter 17, verse 5, is the first place. Now, John chapter 17 is one of those portions of Scripture that when I say John 17, it should be like Matthew 5 or Matthew 25, 26, or 1 Corinthians 13. They're all famous portions of Scripture. And John chapter 17 is famous for what reason? What is it? The high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. On the day or night before he was betrayed, he prayed to his father as the high priest. And he prayed for his disciples, those who would become his saved people. And it says in John chapter 17, 5, And now, O Father, 
glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. A glimpse beyond the beginning of creation. Jesus says, the glory that I had with thee before the world was. Well, that's maybe a little bit hard. When I think of glory, I think of the angels appearing to the shepherds in the brightness in the sky. When I think of glory, I think of the Lord in all his glory on his throne in heaven that shows forth brilliantly to all who might see it. But what about glory in the eternal past? There was no light. There was nothing. Just God. And God's spirit, uh, he's invisible. You can't see. What is glory? Well, the members of the Godhead glorified one another. Glory is giving praise, acknowledging something that's very great about that which you're glorifying, something that's exceptional. And the Godhead in times past, in the person of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, lifted up one another, praised one another for how great they were as God, the great God of, of eventually the world. Uh, the, so the first glimpse we get is the glorious state of God in the pre-creation pre, uh, days. Second, there was fellowship between the persons of the Trinity. John chapter 17, verse 5, same verse, different part of the verse, different phrase. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Another scripture, John chapter 1, New Testament, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. We find out a little later in that chapter that the Word is a reference to Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And so we have Jesus Christ with God in the Godhead. Here is a picture, a key word here in your outline, the blank there. There was fellowship between the persons of the Trinity in the time or the lack of time before the creation. And then thirdly, Again, in John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus prayed, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me. There's a truth we just talked about. Where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. There was love exhibited between the members of the Godhead in eternity past. And so by believing our Bible and reading our Bible, we find three characteristics of God in eternity past. Number one, it was a glorious time. Number two, it was a tremendous time of fellowship between the persons of the Godhead. And number three, it was a time when great love was demonstrated between the persons of the Godhead in that time. Now, in order to come to a full understanding, though, we need to understand They were framed by God's attributes. 
Well, if you have a picture at home on the wall, uh, you usually don't hang a picture without a frame of some sort. And the frame more or less determines the boundaries. It's set there as kind of a backdrop to complement the picture and blend the picture. And sometimes it controls uh, the extent. And, and so God, God, these three glimpses were framed by God's attributes. The attributes of God, or the attributes of you, are what make you who you are. They're the characteristics of your person. And when we open our Bible, of course, this is a vast study, if we wanted to study this exhaustively. We open our Bibles, we find that there are different kinds of attributes that describe God. And different theologians have used different terms to divide these attributes up. The model we're using today is three categories of attributes. Number one, for your blank there, the attributes of personality. The attributes of personality. Number two, the attributes of goodness. And number three, the attributes of greatness. Personality, goodness, greatness. And then perfection. We'll see in a little bit how that fits in. The attributes, if you look at these carefully, you'll find define what man is also in the case of personality and goodness, but not in the sense of greatness. In the sense of personality and goodness, the attributes that are described there are all attributes that man has, that make man what he is. That's why we say, and that's why God said, let us make man in our image. In other words, the attributes that apply to us shall apply to man, so that man is a person we can communicate with, we can have fellowship with. He's basically intrinsically the same as us in the Godhead. But the attributes of greatness, of course, are perfection and carry beyond and separate God from man in terms of who is who. And so I wanted to bring your attention to these attributes because these attributes apply to God throughout all eternity. This is what God is like. And God is spirit, which you'll notice isn't contained here in any of these. He is spirit. He is not a material being, so you can't see him or touch him or smell him or watch him. He's a spirit in eternity past. And the attributes of personality uh, are what define the spirit of God or the spirit of a man. Your spirit is living. It's active. It's emotional. It's intelligent. It's free. It's purposive. It's self-conscious. When you die and your spirit departs your body, it takes those things with you. Those are the things that make you who you are. And uh, same true of God. They describe God. He is living. That means he has the potential to act and intervene to do things. Uh, now we're going to see active coming next here. That's when he actually, as a living being, takes action, intervenes, and does things. But living is basically being alive and having the potential. Remember, the idols have ears, but they can't hear. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have a nose, but they can't smell. They're not living. They're dead. But God can know all things and see all things. He is living. He is active. He intervenes in human affairs. He's emotional. He's the perfection of emotion. 
He's not just sometimes happy and sometimes sad and sometimes grieving and sometimes wrathful and sometimes compassionate. He is the perfect blend of all the emotional characteristics. Isn't that humbling? Oh, oh, I wish I could have the perfect blend. But that's why it says we should develop the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit create in us a, a blend. It's, he's intelligent. He thinks. He's able to know things. He's able to remember things from the past. He's able to relate things one to another and come to conclusions. He's free. He can do whatever he wants to do. But, of course, he will never violate the characteristics of his person as we look at the next set of attributes under goodness. He must not violate. He will not violate. But anything within the realm of his character, he is free to do. Uh, we are not completely free. We are free, and then we make our own decisions. You're going to decide this afternoon whether you go out and pass out flyers or what else you do. You're going to make a decision about that. You're free to make that decision. You're free. But you're still going to be constrained. If you get ill, you may not be able to do that. If something happens in your family, you may be called away. It may keep you from doing that. You're not totally, but God is totally free. There's nothing that can hinder him or stop him from doing whatever he chooses to do. He is purposive. He can look in the future and determine that he's going to do something and then move events toward that accomplishment. He's self-conscious. He uh, is aware of himself and how he relates to his surroundings. It's kind of a feeble illustration, but as I was eating this morning, I pulled a toweling off the rack on the wall, and it seems like every day we have at least one of those big tank box bugs that get into the house. You seen those things crawling around? They look like a tank. <laughs> And uh, I stepped on him and threw him on the ground, and he was squirming around down there, and I was thinking, that poor guy, I need to put him out of his misery. But he was just crawling along on one leg, half dead, because I crushed him in half. He wasn't doing that because he was trying to get to a certain spot where he could get freedom and that kid. He's just doing that because that was instinctively what he would do, is crawl. But God is purposive. We are purposive. We are self-conscious. We know who we are and how we relate to the things around us. And then the attributes of goodness. God is holy, totally set apart in righteousness. He's righteous. He's true. He's faithful. He's loving. He's merciful. And then the attributes of greatness, unchangeableness, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence. All these things distinguish God from man in his attributes of greatness. And in perfection, he is all that any of these terms describe him to be. He is perfect. In the personality and goodness attributes, we are, those describe us, but God contains those things to a perfect level. I'd like for you, I'm going to change a little bit here if our pianist would come and Lincoln would come. Uh, we're going to do this at the end of the service. I choose to do it right now. I want you to look at these characteristics and think of songs in your hymn book that display these characteristics. The first one we're going to sing, for example, is number 16, Immortal, Invisible, 
God only wise. Number 16. If you turn there in your hymnals, and Lincoln will come and lead you, and then we're going to ask for you to pick favorites that you have for a few minutes that reflect these attributes which uh, are listed here we've gone over. Lincoln? Number 16. <laughs>
75. What attribute is that? God's great love. How can it be? Let's go to another one. Well, that is going to be the invitation hymn. Okay. Very good. We'll come back to that one for the invitation. Mr. Counselor. 107. What attributes? A wilds. 107 in the wilds. One oh seven in the wilds. What attributes is that again? His mercy. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever.
Yes, Mrs. Barrows. Um, 592. 592. The love of God. The love of God. Number 592. I love to tell the story. I sing the mighty power of God. Yeah. 
one more. Mr. Vondi, number nine. Number nine, that's pretty self-explanatory. Holy, holy, holy. Let's stand as we sing. Holy, holy, holy. seated. Isn't it amazing some of the things that are in that song that express who God is? These attributes define who God is, and by virtue of who he is, he deserves our all, our praise, our thanksgiving. Listen to this, that such a God is our God. Imagine what it would be like if our God were not holy. For God, we're not eternal. I'm thankful God is who he is. God desires for fellowship. He had a desire for fellowship 
way back before the world was created. How do I know that? Because in Ephesians 1.4, speaking specifically of the church here, but nonetheless, it says this, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, that for before him we're with him, in love. In eternity past, he conceived that he wanted an individual with whom he could fellowship. John 14, 1 to 3 looks to the future. It says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, notice this, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. He wants his people to be with him in fellowship, in love, in glory for all eternity. Unfortunately, God created man, and it was no surprise to him, when given the test of faith, the test of whether he's going to put his trust in God or his trust in himself, he chose to put his trust in himself. And that was a disastrous result. But nonetheless, I contend with you that God created man with the thought in mind that he was creating an individual who was in his image and therefore would be like him and could be a companion to him, being in the same image, living, active, intelligent, to have that companion for all eternity. Breaking into this timeless nothingness, not to diminish the presence of God in eternity past, come the words of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God thereby initiated plans to fulfill his desire to have companions, who could share his love, his fellowship, his rejoicing in his glory. And so time commenced with the beginning of creation. And in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Exodus 20, or 20 verse 11. But of particular significance is the latter part of the sixth day when God made the proclamation let us make man in our image after our likeness. We've already talked about what it means to be in the image of God. Uh, five points here that really aren't in your outlines that you have. But number one is well, we were made in the image of God. Number two, Genesis 1:26 and following. Uh, this is a proclamation. Let us make man in our image. It wasn't a command. It was a proclamation, not a command. Well, what difference does it make? Well, look back with me if you open your Bibles and turn to chapter 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light. Read the rest with me, would you? And there was light. Go to chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. 
And God made the firmament, divided the waters that were under the firmament from the waters that were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. Read it with me. And it was so. Chapter 1, verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven and divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Verse 15, and let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven and to give light upon the earth. What's it say? And it was so. And then we go to chapter 1, verses uh, 20 and 21. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creatures that have life and fowl that fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which is waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after its kind. And God saw that it was good. He brought it forth. But when we get to man, man isn't just the result of God's breath of command. Man is a person that he takes special interest in. The text leads us to visualize God appearing in human form and with his own hands making the man from the dust or dirt of the earth, then placing his mouth over the nostrils of the lifeless body. God forced his own breath into the body, bringing it to life. Genesis 2, 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. There is in the Old Testament what we call theophanies. Theophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we see it most prominently and most clearly in the three strangers that approached Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And one of them was the angel of the Lord. One was the pre-incarnate Christ. Now that could only accomplish, only be, God could only become the pre-incarnate Christ or become incarnate by virtue of the fact that man was created in his image. You know, God couldn't become some animal or some creature. God had to become man because man was exceptional of everything else he had created because man was in God's image. And when God created him, he gave very personal attention to this particular aspect of his creation that was unlike anything he ever did with any of the rest of creation. He came down and formed man with his own hands. I wonder if you've ever noticed this. Turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, I'm in the wrong chapter. I uh, have been frustrated using my Bible lately. You know why that is? It's not because of the Bible. I've, my Bible came apart and I had to send it in and have it rebound, so I've been without my Bible. You know how that is? You, uh, you have everything in my head is on a certain place on the page, and this is a good Bible, but it's not got everything on the same place, so... It says there, now I'm in chapter 1. 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Oh, I bought him his Bible when he... This is familiar. Ah, here it is. Well, the verse I'm looking for is a verse that says, And God planted a garden. Here it is, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Did you know God was a gardener? The picture here, God planted it. He didn't speak it into existence. Here was all this world that was created, and he went in the midst of this world and cultivated part of it and planted a special garden. And he put the man in that garden. Uh, he did, the whole world wasn't a garden. I mean, he made that garden special after he made the man. And then he put the man into the garden. Special personal attention. It must have been a beautiful place. Perhaps with plants and things there that didn't appear anywhere else in the world. It was a, it was a garden planted especially for God to have fellowship with his son, the one he had created. Also, look at uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. God created the woman, and it was a very personal moment. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her into the man. Now, first of all, you understand that when he did this, it was after, by the sequence of the chapters, he put the man in the garden. The man was created in this world, but then he put the man in a special garden for a special place for the woman to be created, for the rib of the man. And then it says that he took a rib from Adam, and when he was done, it says he closed up the flesh instead thereof. That, that gives me a picture of somebody doing surgery. I don't know, I don't know how he finished the job. <laughs> I don't know what the mixture was between the miraculous and the, and the forming with his hands. There had to be some miraculous things happen there. I don't know if the woman then, once he took the rib, was like the multiplication of the fishes or if it was like God building it like he did Adam. Uh, but God took a personal interest in creating this woman. And he didn't just leave her there for Adam to find. He evidently took her away from there for a time and then brought her back and introduced them to one another. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he woman and brought her unto the man. I don't know if Adam had a scar on his side or not. I kind of like to think he did. That when he woke up, he had this scar, or maybe it took some time to heal, I don't know. And what's that, Lord? How'd I get that? Well, he knew that she was bone of his bones, didn't he? God took a personal interest in this man and this woman. And he cared for them in special ways. Why all this very special care and personal attention and involvement of God? It was because God was creating mankind to be his special companion. 
God was creating mankind to be his special companion. You want to know something? He gives the same special care and personal attention to each one of you and to me. Well, you say, God didn't form me with his own hands from the dirt. Well, listen to these verses. Luke chapter 12, verse 6. You might want to turn there. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. The hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. Psalm 139. There's another psalm that scripture that ought to maybe ring your bell a little bit. Oh, I, I, you know that scripture, don't you? Let me read a portion of it, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsittings and my uprisings. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compasseth my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Skipping to verse 13. For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance is not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. That's almost more personal than the account of God created Adam. God loves you. God wants you to be his eternal companion forever in heaven, to enjoy his glory, experience his love, and be in fellowship. But because of that curse, because of that mistake of Adam, we were thrown into sin, and we're all sinners. So if we're going to fulfill God's original desire for us, the only way we can do it is by coming to Christ. You know, I started on this train of thought because I was trying to write, and I'm, I'm still trying to write, working on writing, a synopsis of Scripture that can be read in one sitting but gives you a perspective of how the whole Bible progresses and what it's all about. What you really got here this morning is the introduction to that. The fall of man comes next. But God created man to be his special companion. That's why we're in his image. What about your neighbor as we think of tomorrow? I'd have you turn to Matthew chapter 18, verse 10 and following, and listen to these words. Jesus is speaking in the context of believers somewhat here, but it applies to the whole world. Verse 10, you'll remember this story. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye? 
If a man have an hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety-nine and goeth into the mountains and seek that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Tomorrow you have an opportunity given by God to share the wonderful message to these people who will be here, some of which are living in the turmoil of a worldview that doesn't know anything about this book, that God created them to be his eternal companion. Hey, there's a lot more we could say about that. There's a lot more we could say about that, but I saved that for the other end of the story when we end the story. What a wonderful privilege. What a great responsibility. And so as we close today, I just ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. Reflect on your situation. You were made personally by God in the womb, in his image, because he wants you to be his companion forever in eternity. But that can only happen if you trust Christ's sacrifice to take away your sin and impute his righteousness to you. Have you done that? Have you cried out and just thrown yourself on God and said, Lord, you've offered your salvation. I accept it. I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize that that requires eternal separation from you. But you, having no other eternity out of the great love of which you loved us, died on the cross for our sins. Lord, strengthen us with your spirit tomorrow that we may good, be good witnesses for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.